Hi everyone. We have missed you since the end of season one, and we're here with a standalone episode that will hopefully carry you over until we release season two. In this episode, Ivan and I chat with our friend and colleague, Brian Dilks, who is an associate professor of biochemistry at Purdue. This episode is a little different than the previous six. Instead of the hosts interviewing a guest about a paper from his or her lab, this time all three of us discussed together a recent paper from the literature. We were already having a discussion about this paper offline and realized that our discussion touched on topics that will likely be familiar to regular listeners of the taproot, such as the challenge of defining and quantifying impact and the diverse ways in which people's careers develop. So, we decided to record it. Please enjoy. Well, Brian Dilks, welcome to the Taproot. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I did want to start by saying that we should reveal at the beginning that Liz and Brian and I have a private venting group that we participate in with the three of us. And actually that led to this this discussion because we were venting about this paper in different ways and discussing it and thought, you know, actually this would be a great uh, thing to talk about on the Taproot because it really touches on a lot of the themes from our first se- season. And so... The paper that we are going to be discussing is from Peer J, 2015, and it is called Prediction of Junior Faculty Success in Biomedical Research, a Comparison of Metrics and Effects of Mentoring Programs by Christopher von Bartheld, Ramona Haumenfar, and Amber Candido, uh, who are all at the University of Reno in Nevada. And what they did in this paper is they looked at a cohort of faculty. And the, the key thing for this cohort was they all were people who had been part of a, uh, a proposal to fund a Center of Biomedical Research Excellence, which is an NIH program. And so they took, and there was 40 faculty in this group, and they separated them into the ones, the group of people who were successful in getting one of these COBRAs funded, C-O-B-R-E, and those that weren't. So that is their treatment and control group. The difference, that's that's how they broke up the faculty members to see how, and, and they were testing to see how well these, uh, these programs did at uh, improving faculty success. So I think a couple really important things to note about the way they set this up. One is that uh, the mentored group and the unmentored group, the only difference from their perspective is that they were they were either successful in getting these grants or not successful in getting these grants. The other is their definition of success. They define success was defined as having external, not including this COBRA funding, of any amount and duration. In addition, uh, publishing on average at least one last author uh, or senior author paper in PubMed during per year during or upon graduation from the COBRA program. So they'd say that's what makes a successful faculty, and I think that's certainly something we should talk about is, is that a good definition of success. The other thing I think important to note here 
they so they 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 have these two groups of 20 faculty and I, I think it's also important to note that that's not actually that many people and so but they look at a bunch of parameters about the the two groups starting in the beginning interestingly uh, or depressingly one of the things is in their control group the male female ratio was 10 to 10 in their mentored group uh, there was 15 men and five women so there's already clearly so a disparity there and but in terms of at the start the publication uh, metrics that they used, h-index or a version of h-index that controls for your author order were approximately the same between the groups or at least not significantly different. Um, and then they looked at how successful the mentorship was and they did show that the, in the mentored program by their definition of success the, the mentored program improved the success rate. They also went on to look at what metrics could predict success both within and outside of the control group and they looked at H index at the beginning they also looked at number of papers where you were a first author number of papers where you were a first author that had that was in a journal of impact factor of greater than nine and and then they followed those metrics and to look at what predicted success their main so they, they did see that the the mentorship program did uh, by their metric increased the success so those who were in the mentorship program were much more successful quote-unquote than those who weren't they H index or the modified uh, H index which they call a B index did not predict success at all basically there was no power there the the, the two things that are uh, uh, interesting in terms of the publications were the number of total first author papers before the program started was the best predictor of success. The, the more papers you had, the more successful you were. Just getting one high-impact paper had no effect on the percent chance of success. If you had two or more, the numbers went up pretty well in terms of high-impact uh, success. So their conclusion was that the best predictor was number of first author papers irrespective of impact factor. And that's basically the paper. It's it's infuriating. Well, yes. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, there are many th so Liz I think uh would would come in the uh camp of not enjoying this paper as being representative of interesting science. Liz, do you want to lay out that case? Okay. So, I have so many bones to pick with this paper that we should probably take them one at a time. <laughs> um, my, my original first concern was that the best correlation with success as defined in the paper is not the number of papers you published, it's whether or not you have a Y chromosome. <laughs> because the number of men that were successful, it's defined by this, was 13 out of the 25. and the number of women that were successful in both groups was one out of 15. That right there is enough to explain everything. It's not necessary to, in, to invoke anything about number of publications or anything. Like basically, if you're a man, you have the opportunity to be successful, and if you're a woman, you do not. And I, so I just feel like they kind of glossed over, they, they say women were less successful than men, but they don't even present the, num the data or, they, they go into like the numbers regarding 
um, speaking English as a first language or ethnicity, but they just like drop the whole issue of sexism. And I think it's, I just think it's actually not, look, the, their data need to be analyzed properly for sex. So if you have a situation where you start with 15 total women, is that right? And one of them gets yeah. a success, and this is purportedly a study conducted in the 1990s and 2000s, you have a bigger problem than measuring effectiveness. You have what is likely a very toxic culture. Yeah, and I guess what I'm what I'm also saying is like, you, they're just ignoring this gigantic factor and pretending like that's not a conflating factor. But if women are less likely to be first authors on papers, or if women are less likely to geez, I don't know, anything, be productive. They refer, I think, accurately to the issue of childbearing years being overlapping with, uh, you know, being a junior faculty member, and they also refer to uh, gender discrimination within the sciences. Both of those are entirely possible. But you can't really, when you have an effect that huge, yeah. so you, you can't just, like, pretend like it's not there and say, oh, it probably has to do with how many papers you publish. Like, it clearly has to do with being a woman, and then maybe the number of papers is, is a layer on top of it or is related to being a woman, but you, they're just like ignoring this gigantic factor and going af after this tiny thing that I just, I don't find compelling in the least. And that's just for those following at home. That's, 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 in, uh, that's in table two. Right. So I can say the numbers. So the number of, of, of faculty that did not, were not in the program was 10 men and 10 women. The number of faculty that were that were in the program was 15 men and five women so already a problem yeah right you can already see right. a problem so then then when they look at the at the end who they defined as being successful or not 13 out of the total 25 men were successful so over half and of the 15 women one was successful one out of 15 yeah so so one out of five in the mentored group. and the 10 the 10 that were not mentored were not successful. Like, I don't know. I'd love to hear your guys' input. So, so I use this paper, actually, in discussions about hiring and, and how we want to look at candidates. And I don't use it as an example of, of, uh, of toxic culture, but I do use it as an example of, or let's say as a, as a data point on chasing junior scientists out of large labs with one mm, really giant, exciting high pub. Impact, yeah. Yeah. And that's so to me the thing that I think is is remarkable be, because I think it's a bias of a lot of faculty members cer certainly a lot of my colleagues here and not just in my department is that you know if you've made if you you have made a science paper sort of ignoring the collaborative nature of of things if you have made a science paper then you are likely to do that again and what this paper really says is that that's not true i do like that a uh, point yeah. but i just think you can only talk about men because men are the only ones that were successful in this study <laughs> i guess my question and i haven't i don't know if it's possible to suss this out but i think on the plus side they at least are asking questions and they are they have hypotheses they are they are they're to some extent trying to measure things and that's very hard in these situations on the minus side it's still a total of 40 faculty members and how much of the effect of this 
that, that we're seeing here is completely explained by this confounding toxic sexist culture that you clearly have. <laughs> right. Well, well, let's, you know, if we can cut him just a little bit of slack, they did report data about the success rates and it illuminates culture. And I think if people don't publish studies about faculty mentoring and how faculty, by whatever metric, how faculty success is, uh, is being determined, it makes it a lot harder to turn around and change it. I mean, you could, you could essentially turn to the provost of the University of, of Nevada, Reno, in 2015 and say, we have a major problem. Except that the authors chose not to do that. Instead, they chose to put a single line about women versus men and instead focus on mentoring, right? They did not yeah. say, holy uh, crap. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> holy expletive. We, right? Like, why, when you, when they saw those data, they should have immediately dropped all pretense about this being about anything other than trying to figure out wh what is happening to their women. Like, that, this is crazy. And I, I understand what you're saying, which is, yes, they reported the data and it's in there, but that is like nowhere in the abstract, in the title, and it's like so minimized in the discussion as to have clearly been requested by a reviewer. So the the group size here for yeah. female hits five. Yeah. I wondered about about the sort the of privacy exposure. of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, of the faculty members. Right. Well, I was I thought about it a lot too because of that earlier paper that was published looking at graduate programs at UCSF where yes. we all got riled up because we were like oh was I on the was I considered successful or not successful and can you imagine being one of those junior faculty and being like I'm which one of those numbers is me I mean like, so let me ew. let me just make two points one in the show notes uh, we will have the link to this UCSF paper that Liz is referring, as well as the excellent letter that Liz and many of her colleagues <laughs> wrote. I may have a little, wrote yeah, In a response little. to that, uh, pardon my French that. storm of a paper that shouldn't have been published. <laughs> and it, But the other point I would like to make. <laughs> and the conversation that happened around that was actually, I think, a really, a really interesting one. It's yeah. a very, in a way, very similar to the one we're having now, but broader. So in within the mentored group, 10 of the 15 men were considered successful and one of the five women. So even in your mentoring program, you have this massive yes. problem that you – I think fundamentally I, I kind of come down with Liz here on that. When, you, when it's this obvious, the, the fact that they are glossing over that and the fact that that is you – know, the takeaway from this paper – is is not at all about that is no it is not is a problem yeah yeah you know at purdue uh we have participated uh in the the coach survey of sort of faculty satisfaction and, and it, it measures a whole bunch of things and the response to for example female associate professor dissatisfaction was immediate and systemic you know it, it did involve a lot of thrashing and hand wringing and committeeing, but you know that's all work that was necessary to figure out how to change or even approach problems with culture yeah right i mean it's like you, once you identify that you have a problem so something here is bad 
now I have to figure out what it is, or at least come up with an idea and then respond. And the other thing about the coach survey is the 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 summaries were all made public. You know, that every all the all the summary tables were were turned into PDFs and put up and given to faculty and town halls were done. So for all of my substantial complaint about higher educational leadership, I have seen counter examples <laughs> yeah. where you do have a big problem and you don't try and bury it. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's important. And I also, I mean, I do want to say, I mean, I, this, I know this is like contradictory to what I just said, which is that, that they're ign- ignoring this point sort of ruins the whole paper for me. Uh, and actually, I have a couple of other beefs too. That You're right that there's a, there are, is a nugget in here. Sort of in reference to that UCSF paper, like I was, the way they defined success was they basically asked these pe- these students, old professors, whether or not their students were successful, which is so inherently wrong. I would just want to positively affirm Liz's statement of how f- completely screwed up that is as a way of yeah. determining success. I know, and, and so bad. But I just love the idea of like professors as connoisseurs of the graduate experience. Oh my god, it's it's, it's, it's just like... so annoying. But but what I want to say is that. There's a nugget in there, which is that GRE scores are useless, that's actually worth following up on. And here, yeah. there's a nugget that's worth following up on, which is this idea that our obsession with postdocs who have one giant publication is not well-founded. Fun- well um, and so I-, I appreciate that point. So, And two things about that. So one is that th- there are other papers that show the value of consistent productivity in right. in b- building scientific influence, right. if you like. And I thought they, they sort of referred to that well in the paper, that the, the idea of like needing to show leadership over time enough to be a first author on multiple papers. Yeah, and I, I actually, you know, as a as a as an observer, I also th- think that the what the traits that that support consistency whether they're you know extrinsic or intrinsic, right? So whether it's mentoring and support in a good environment, or um, or your own uh, your own sort of drive and 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 how you how you uh, how you order your life, do ultimately result in you know grants submitted, students mentored, courses redone, and the trait that favor holding everything back until you have so much data that it's a it's an over, overwhelmingly large piece don't always translate into into being good at these other aspects of the job. Yeah, I think that's fair. Just like there's there's other pieces of, of information that, that show, you know, sort of like uh, consistency as, as a valuable thing to look at. Um, there's also other things besides the UCSF study that looked at GRE scores. And I think it's a fair point to say <clears throat> having a good point in a bad paper uh, is a bit of a Trojan horse, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, maybe we could just talk a little bit about... Point um, Yeah, point two. So the second point I'd like to discuss is um, we referred to a little bit already, which is trying to define... This is a challenge, right? Trying to define what success is. So as we already discussed, asking your old professor whether or not you are successful is not an appropriate approach that is definitely wrong and these guys define it in a way that in a lot of ways makes sense right you have to publish a paper where you're you're the final author these are faculty members so they should probably be doing that and they have to get some external funding these are metrics for tenure and for 
I mean, I think, I don't think there's anybody who would say those aren't important elements of success. But I feel like there's a lot missing there. What do you think is missing there? Well, I guess I feel like breakthrough ideas is missing. Like, I feel like as somebody who has been characterized multiple times as underpublished, <laughs> I feel like sometimes it takes a while to get new ideas up and going. And sometimes it might be hard to get funding for things that you're starting that are new. I mean, those should be aspects of success as well. Like just doing the easy stuff and pick low, picking the low-hanging fruit is fine. But I feel like imp- having impact on other people is and and changing science and discovering new things is important too. And I guess I was thinking about impact on on things other than science like like a podcast like doing a podcast or mentoring your students or um and publishing is part of that right just like brian was saying i mean if you have people in your lab and you you only publish one gigantic paper every eight years how are all those people getting moving on and getting degrees and getting jobs becoming successful becoming successful i was thinking about people who have other types of impact like Nancy Hopkins had a huge impact for women in science by really pushing on questions of sexism with regard to how space was allocated in her department at MIT. Well, that's not a paper. That's not a grant. That is extremely impactful for many women since when, whenever that it, was, 1990. It work. And it's work. That's, that's service is what that is. So I guess I just felt like I don't disagree with these things and I understand that the other contributions are harder to quantify but I just would like to have some reference to the fact that success is in essence defined by the user right like I get to decide whether I'm successful or not yeah and this is actually where this conversation started yeah. so so back it's, it's your second point today but it was but it was really the first point of of discontinuity I raised that I like this paper and and you were just like and no I ripped your eyes out. <laughs> you're, you're lucky you live a state away. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Two states away. I've got a state buffer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Whatever. I don't really know my geography. Illinois, but... Illinois is keeping me safe. Yeah. No, no. That was really the the point that, that started this conversation off. And I think, and I do think it's a, it's a very correct point, especially when you consider that the actual workload we know is disproportionately distributed between men and women. Yeah. And then you you're when you're when you're measuring as work this one component of of what it what it means to be a useful if not successful faculty member. Right. So those poor five women on on the Cobra, they probably yeah. were all on the steering committee and running the graduate program and so and doing the outreach and the diversity stuff and so they didn't have any time to publish any papers. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know. yeah. Yeah. Well, this was, I mean, just to come back to the coach thing, I mean, this is part of what came out of discussions about associate professor dissatisfaction at Purdue was that it was really clear that both the actual load and the perceived load, that there was this really stark contrast between how men and women were looking at, you know, in aggregate, were looking at how, how loads were distributed. Um, and that was one of the things that, that, that we, we talked a lot about. I mean, I think that's, it gets back to, it's really important to ask and to measure things. 
and it's really hard to measure th and and one thing about their criteria is a it is important clearly and b it's something they could actually measure so i think you know liz is absolutely right like you know, how is your mentoring? How is your, is it just number of students graduated, or is it, you know, how, uh, you know, are are your students uh, employed in your field? Is that a is that a is that a you know, but or is it you know an intangible like this person is a really good mentor and they teach really well. Right. That's a very you know hard to measure and it's and as soon as you're subjective you bring back in all the biases of everybody has layered on racial. Uh, sexual, gendered, all those things come back in and and it gets, it's hard. So it's good to think about things we can measure and look at them, but it's also important not to just say the th only things that are important are the things that we can measure. Right. So I think that, that I read this on a, on a tweet somewhere. I thought it was such a great point, which is we're really in trouble when our metrics become our goals. Yes. Yes, exactly. And yeah, I think that one was about that one was about impact factors. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it's I, I mean, I think I had been thinking of it in the context of tenure, right? So again, with tenure, we, we do as much of the subjective stuff as we can where we get all these letters and um, student evaluations and all those types of things. But when it comes down to it, it's about papers and grants. Uh, and because they are these easy metrics, but publishing papers and getting grants is not the goal of scientific research. The goal of scientific research is discovery. Yeah, it's understanding even. Yeah, it, yeah, understanding. Right. I think that's better than discovery. I think. But we get into this. It's so. It's like the way the human mind is wired, or something, is that we so quickly switch over to, or maybe it's the way scientists are wired. We switch <laughs> over to metrics being the goal. I got to get a grant. Yeah, well, if if this number is correlated, you know, so here's Brian Dilks, right? So if this number, number of first author, author publications as a postdoc or as a junior scientist is correlated with later faculty success, well, then that's the number we should be paying attention yeah. to, right? So that was, right. it's exactly that kind of perspective that, that so quickly becomes tortured and orthodox, right? It's an orthodoxy. Yeah. And it, I, that makes me scared because, as I said, I've, I've always published fewer papers than have been suggested to be appropriate for whatever stage I'm at. <laughs> May I step in here and just say, looking over your Google Scholar page, that the idea that you are underpublished is f No, <laughs> Ivan, well, early on, and for my first four years here at WashU, we did not publish any papers. And I can promise you, everybody was f***ing their pants. <laughs> And, yeah. <laughs> including me and including, including me yeah. but so i think i understand what you're saying you know yes we're we're publishing at a, at a steady clip now but and i don't think that people's advice to get some papers out was wrong but if people were encouraged to only hire faculty candidates who had many papers under their belt i would be teaching yoga at a studio in pasadena right now <laughs> which maybe that wouldn't be so bad I don't know. <laughs> shout out to all the yoga instructors yeah. The other way to say it would be, if you don't have an incredibly toxic culture for women, some of these conclusions may not apply. Right. That's fair. Yeah. Absolutely. But also, but also that these metrics don't capture creativity, right? They don't capture the new idea. They capture consistency. And are you, is this, is this the road to mediocrity, right? Yeah. I don't know. It, it is definitely not the road to nuance. That's for sure. Well, I think that was a good discussion. 
uh, of that topic. Liz, what was your third topic? My third point is that they attribute all of these effects that they see to mentoring, but those people didn't only get mentoring, they got a five-year grant. And money equals papers, papers equal success. So I, I, I don't get why they're allowed to... To separate these things. Attribute any of this to mentoring. Do we, do we know how much these grants were? I, did I miss that in the paper? I don't think they say that. And, but they also don't say what, what, what was the mentoring. Was it like a coffee or a workshop? or Being told what to work on? I think that is uh, a, that's an important point. Is that, yeah, is that the treatment isn't mentoring. Yeah, the treatment is getting the treatment a grant. is COBRA. Yeah. So I feel like that conflates a lot of the, their conclusions about the role of mentoring here. Although it may, in a, in a manner, it may be, the, the conflation may actually be the programmatic alignment of the junior faculty with the other faculty at the institution. That's right. Or, or it could be access to senior co-authors at, through <clears throat> right. that institution. Because those types of, if, if this works the way our NSF Science and Technology Center works, they really encourage joint publications. And so if, I mean, one huge thing in getting papers in is having uh, some big name on your paper, and uh, maybe these guys were able to have as their second to last author some big wig that, that helped them get things published. I don't know. I will just point out that they say in the paper that COBRA awards $170 million annually which is more than the budget of the uh, USDA external grants program annually. Mm-hmm. So, But that COBRA, that's in a large number of institutions. Not oh, just. sure. Not just Reno. Oh, yeah. sure. Absolutely. No, I'm just saying, but, it, you know, even if it's... It's a big put. It's a big put. If they give out 400 awards. That's still an NSF grant size award for every group. Right. And this is one of the things I think is worth, it's also worth pointing out, is that if... Cobra is supposed to mentor faculty and the success rate. <laughs> right. They're doing a shitty job. Yeah, they're doing a shitty job. Yeah. yeah, the success rate for women is one in five for the people that you've decided to resource. Right. You're you're doing you're doing a bad job at something. So so I just I went to the Cobra site at at NIGMS. And so each a principal investigator will be uh, expertise central to the research theme of a center. There will be three to five individual research projects, each supervised by a single junior investigator that stand alone but share a common thematic focus. Uh-huh. At least one mentor for each junior investigator and a development and mentoring plan addressing how the junior investigators will transition to competitive grant support from the NIH. Interesting. So, yeah, so it's it's a programmatic R21. So, no, so I think Liz is absolutely right. This is a grant. So by getting the grant, you get more grants, which is true you get more grants and you get a paper where you're the final author now they tried it's a little it's a little vague how they described it in the paper but they tried there's sort of a front loading of the of the cobra effect because they tried to only count papers when there was funding other than cobra but the way they describe it it's a little weird it's a, a little tortured and we all know that that doesn't actually work we may it's it's you build a body of work in your lab are you saying that i might still publish papers from data that i collected on grants that are now expired i'm saying you may still publish papers on on grants that you had as a postdoc (laughs) because i know you 
Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Well, do you guys want to tell me how much you love the H index? No, I don't want to tell you how much I love the H index. Actually, that was one of the things I really liked about the paper was the evisceration yeah. of the H index and the decoupling of impact factor from everything. I would love to tell you how much right. I hate the impact factor. <laughs> impact factors are for journals. I looked up our H indexes, all three of us. Yes. Oh, and who's yeah. who's so, the best? Ivan. Ivan is more successful than me or Brian. <gasps> Liz, with, you're number no. two. I've, oh. So Ivan has an H index of 28, according to Google, Google Scholar, yes. Uh, yes. with uh, 5,801 citations. Coming in close is Brian with an H index of 25. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that mine is 18. <laughs> And, and you know what? Most of those citations are to the big, the paper that's the most cited is a paper that I was second author on in grad school. <laughs> well, you know, but if you look at both Ivan and mine, I think that's probably also true. No, actually, it's not. It's not? The, no, the most cited ones for me, if you sort by my citations, you'll find that they are ones where I am a middle author of a cast of manys and manys. So I, I did work on both of those papers, but those two account for 2,100 of my 5,000 citations. The first paper I published as a graduate student is my third. It has 301, and that's, I, that's, go that's good. But I think this is, I mean, I don't know what this AB index is. I, I assume I would be much lower on that. So yes, H index, not so good. Yeah, it really handicaps people who have small fields. But you know what's ironic is that it yes. it rewards the kind of work you do, right, Ivan, and you too, Brian, where you're where you're on these big multi-PI projects, which are often, in academics especially, people have trouble arguing that they're doing good work when they're... Certainly there's been a lot of complaints directed at me during my promotion process about like, well, which one, which, which work is actually yours? Right, yeah. right. And I think, you know, even when we're looking at faculty applicants for assistant professor jobs, those types of papers tend to get like, dis like not, they're not as, in we're not as interested in those as like you said, the first author science nature cell paper. But if you're, but H index sort of is a metric for a different type of contribution. I just, I guess maybe the solution here is it's to use scientific connectivity. Yeah, I mean, something. maybe we just want to use yeah. many metrics rather than just one, and and yeah. and and that's a way to get a, a full picture of of who people are in a quantitative way. Well, this has been, I think, a great conversation. Many fewer emoji than our normal uh, conversation mode, but. All in all, I think it really did touch on a bunch of these themes that we're really interested in on the Taproot. And so, Brian, we would really appreciate you coming on. Uh, how can people reach you if they want to give you feedback on the episode? Well, I tweet at, at Brian Dilks on Twitter, and that's probably the best way to, to keep the conversation going and keep it public. And, and Liz, how can people reach you? Um, my Twitter handle is at eHaswell. And you can reach me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I, and the Taproot now has its own Twitter handle, which is at Taproot Podcast, and so you are 
uh, free to tweet at us that way. There is also uh, an email address, uh, taproot at planta.org. And with that, Brian, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Taproot. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Taproot Podcast or by email at taproot at plantae.org. The Taproot is produced by ASVB and Plantae. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a positive rating on iTunes so that others can find it easily. 